It's always a miracle because when I sit down, it's not very full, and when I stand up, it's more full. It's like multiplication of the loaves and fishes, um, or multiplication of the sheep, I guess. So I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, teacher will meet you in the back there. And uh, as they're going, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Lord, we um, are the sheep of your hand, and uh, Lord, we do delight in your rod and your staff because they are a comfort to us. Lord, they keep us from wandering too far. And uh, Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your sheep, to be um, our shepherd. And Lord, as we turn now to your word to hear what you have to say to us, uh, we pray that you would use it to, to correct and to guide us. Lord, confront uh, things that we think incorrectly, uh, feelings that we trust we shouldn't, and confirm to us the work that the Holy Spirit has done in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I think I'm probably half insane for trying to do this entire section in one sermon. Um, when we get to like verse uh, 20, I think it is. Yeah, verse 20, there are whole entire sermons based on verse 20. And yet I'm going to do this whole section. Um, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm, I'm taking this risk is because this is an important section. This is, this is Paul's last words as a free man. After this, we won't get another big speech of his until he's arrested in Jerusalem. We just won't get this kind of dialogue. And so it, it, it's one big unit. And I think it helps if we can try to keep it all together. Um, it's Luke. Remember last week I said it was kind of this turning point. It feels like it's the end of the book of uh, Acts. We're kind of coming into the home stretch. And, and this just does it again. This is Paul's farewell speech. It's, it's his summing up of his ministry. Um, the other thing that is really something is this is the end of Paul's public ministry. He's going to be arrested and he's going to go, you know, be in chains from now on. This is the only prolonged dialogue that Paul has with the church in the book of Acts. All of his other major speeches are to people outside the church, to the Jews, to the Greeks, uh, those to the philosophers on Mars Hill. This is his only prolonged dialogue where he is addressing directly to the church. So this morning as we go through this, we can hear this and we can say this applies to us. This is, this is Paul's word to us, his encouragement to us. And so this is Paul's word to the church, his farewell address. And so what we're going to see, the kind of outline it goes through is what he did in verses 18 through 21. He reminds them of what he did. He informs them where he's going. And then finally, he tells them what you should do. And to me, the one that stands out is like, what is where he's going? But when we get to that section, you'll see that it's really important. It actually fits into this whole idea of what the Christian ministry is supposed to look like. So again, if, if the book of Acts is disciples making disciples, then this talk, this speech by Paul, is a disciple-making sermon to disciples to prepare them to make disciples. It's more of that. So let's take a look. The real brief introduction, the, the first verse there, uh, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to him and they came to him and he said, uh, brief introduction. You remember last week we got a little bit of his travel journal. We, we sailed from uh, island to island and and what we heard last week was he had determined to bypass Ephesus. He wasn't going to land at Ephesus because if he landed there, I think he knew he would get drawn in and he, it would be hard to leave. Uh, and he has got this plan. He is going to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. And do you remember last week we kind of did the ticking clock? 
It took him five days here and seven days there, and it was all of a sudden 12 days is shot, and he's trying to get to Jerusalem within 40 days. And so this, again, is another little time-ticking thing that he's, he's rushing to get there because uh, he sends from F, uh, Miletus to Ephesus to have the elders come and join him. Well, Ephesus is about 20 miles from Miletus. That's like a one-day walk. So Paul lands at Ephesus, and he sends some people, and he says, go to, uh, or he lands at Miletus, he says, go to Ephesus and bring the elders. So it's a one-day walk there. They, go, they get there, and they say, okay, you guys, come with us. Paul wants to talk to you. Spend the night. Next morning, get up. They come back. And apparently, they spent the night there before Paul addressed them because he gives them this address. They bless him, and he gets up, and he walks onto the ship and leaves. And so it, it, it is apparent that this has been a couple of days. Tick, 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 tick. We're running out of 40 days, Paul. we got to get this thing nailed. Let's get out of here. Uh, but it's important. So he bypassed Ephesus, land at Miletus, but he didn't want to abandon the church there. He still got a word for them. And so he takes this extra bit of time to call the elders. And he says, come here and let me tell you something. This is important. So that's the setup. So what did he do? He reminds him right off the bat of what he did. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Now, Ephesus is in Asia, and I think it's kind of a summing up for his ministry in Asia, because you remember when he was in the hall of Tyrannus for a couple of years, all of Asia heard. So it's not like he just only ministered in, in Ephesus and never went anywhere else. His ministry affected all of Asia. So when he says, the whole time I was with you from the first day I set foot in Asia, that's the scope of this ministry. These, these Ephesians, they realize that he's affected that whole area. And then he tells them what he did. He served the Lord with humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to him through the plots of the Jews. He served with humility, tears, and trials. This is the nature of Paul's ministry. This is what his ministry looks like. And I think it's important for us to hear this because it's not, well, Paul was super apostle, and we're never going to be like Paul, so you go serve that way, and I'm not going to. What did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 11? 1, he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's his command to us. So if he's addressing the church in this, he's addressing us, and he's saying, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So where I'm like Jesus, you do that. Where I'm not, don't do that. So when we look to his ministry and say, what was his pattern for ministry? Did he mean that everybody should then travel all throughout the Roman Empire? Every single person in the church of Ephesus should depart and head someplace else? It's, it's the opposite of what he's saying. He's not saying imitate me in this missionary journey that I'm on. He's saying imitate me in the way that I minister. And the way I minister is with humility. He sees himself, remember how I defined humility, I've, I've, I've got to repeat this because it's, it has to sink in. Our culture thinks humility is somebody who would never draw attention to themselves, and oh, not me. And that's not biblical humility, because it's a denying of part of who you are. Biblical humility is seeing yourself as God sees you, as seeing and recognizing yourself as God sees you. Not, oh, I would never give offense because I'm so humble. It is, there are times because God has fitted me for this job, Paul says, that I will give offense and I will light into you. But it's not about me. It's about God. So for example, what he says in 1 Corinthians, I think sums up this pretty well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 8. He's talking about Jesus appearing to people and he says, last of all, 
As to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. So when Paul is assessing himself in light of who God is, he says, I persecuted the church. I am a wretched sinner. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because of what I've done. He doesn't... He doesn't smooth it over. He doesn't sand off the rough edges. He says, this is who I am. I recognize this is what I did to God's church. I persecuted them. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. That is seeing himself as God sees him. Now, at that point, then, he should probably just go hide under a rock, right? Because he was such a terrible person. He should just go hide out in the desert and never bother anybody else again. No, because he's seeing himself as God sees him, so he continues. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So he sees himself, first of all, as I am a sinner. He says, I am the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church. But I also see myself as how God sees me. He's extended his grace to me. And by his grace, I am an apostle. I shouldn't be, but by his grace, I am. Do you see how he gets both? He acknowledges who he was. He acknowledges who he is. And he says, this is how God sees me. Sinner and saint. Persecutor and builder up. This is who I am. So when he ministers in humility, he's ministering, understanding this is who God has made me to be. This is how we should minister then in the church. This is how we should serve in the church. Is we don't say, well, I'm just so... I'm such a bad person. I could never do anything. Yes, you are. Let me confirm to you. You are that bad. You really are. You're just terrible. But that's only half the equation. We have to see the other half. You're horrible, and God has redeemed you by grace. So can you serve in the church? Can you minister to God's people without being absolutely perfect paragon of everything that God ever designed for a human being to be? One person gets to do that. That's Jesus. You get to be who you are in light of who he is. So serve with humility. It ain't about you. It's not, well, I'm going to serve in this capacity because it makes me look really good. I'm just so famous when I do this. You serve because you're serving the Lord. You serve with humility. That's what he said. He says, I serve the Lord with humility. I didn't serve the church with humility. I didn't serve you Ephesians with humility. I serve the Lord with humility. And the way the Lord has called me to serve is you. He called me to minister to you, and that's what I did. So I served the Lord with humility. He served the Lord with tears. A man served with tears. And and he's not just a man. He's a dude, right? He's sailing. He's traveling. According to the, the pastoral epistles, he fought lions. I mean, he's a dude. And how did he serve? with tears. He served with tenderness. His service was heartfelt. I really actually care about you people. It was emotional. I get upset when things aren't going well with you. I get, I get really elated when things are going well. I'm serving on an emotional basis as well as just a purely mental one. His, his service was tender and loving. So if you think of his ministry in the, the Hall of Tyrannus, when he taught in Ephesus for two years, Sometimes, I don't know about y'all, I I tend to think of it as as a seminary course. 
But I'll tell you what, I don't, I don't remember any of my seminary professors crying during a message when they were teaching something. I don't remember any of them getting choked up and saying, I really, I want you to care about this. So when you think of Paul teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus, think about him teaching with tears, engaged, emotional, wanting more for his people, loving them. He had an emotional connection to them. It wasn't just aimed at the head, it was aiming at the heart as well. This, this is an emotional engagement I want with you. There's an example that I think pictures this really well because sometimes I think we can kind of get this a, a little askew in the church. We tend to head towards the head a lot. And let me fill you with this really great technical information about these things. And we forget the heart. But there's an example for us beyond Paul. There was, there was a man named Robert Murray McShane. He was a, a, a pastor, a preacher in the Scottish Free Church at the end, latter half of the, the 19th century. Um, he died when he was just 30 years old, but he's had a big impact. He, he really had a large impact in the church in Scotland, especially. Uh, a friend of his, Andrew Boner, or Bonner, um, wrote, an wrote his biography, summed up his notes, and it was really famous. As a matter of fact, you have heard of him because we have these Bible reading plans out in the hallway, and it says right at the top, the McShane reading calendar. So this 30-year-old pastor put together this calendar that we're still using to read through the Bible in a year. right? So this is Robert Murray McShane. So his friend Andrew Bonner tells this story. Let me read it to you. It, this is from um, his uh, memoirs and remains that uh, Bonner wrote. He says, I remember on one occasion when we met, he asked what my last Sabbath, <clears throat> sorry, my last Sabbath subject had been. It had been, the wicked shall be turned into hell. The wicked shall be sent to hell. That's what he means by turned in. On hearing this awful text, he said, were you able to preach it with tenderness? Certain it is that the tone of reproach and upbraiding, upbraiding simply means fault finding, is wildly different from the voice of Solomon, solemn warning. So do you hear what, what McShane said was, you're, you're telling people they're going to hell. Were you able to do it with tenderness? Was, was it breaking your heart to tell these people about hell? And then Bonner goes through and he kind of unpacks this a little bit. He, he, he tells, tells us that certain preachers will preach about hell and just, you know, beat you to death with it. And this is, this is you know, you better not go there. This is bad, and, and boy, aren't you a bad person. He says that it's not saying the hard things that pierces the consciences of people. It is the voice of divine love heard amid the thunder. He's saying it's not sufficient to preach hell, and you're all going there. And you, The idea of hell is, there is a, a tenderness in the midst of this concept of hell. There is this divine love calling you. So that's that tenderness that he wanted. He said the sharpest edge of the two-edged sword is not death, but life. And against self-righteous souls, the latter, life, ought to be more used than the former, death. For such souls can hear us tell of the open gates of hell and of the unquenchable fire for more unconcernedly uh, far more unconcernedly than of the gates of heaven wide open for their immediate return. When we preach that the glad tidings were intended to impart assurance of eternal life to every sinner that believes in them, we strike deeper upon the proud enmity of the world to God than when we show them the eternal curse 
and the second death. Let me unpack that a little bit. What he's saying is, if we minister with tenderness, as Paul is telling us to, with this, this tears, what he's saying is when we preach hell, it's not with a glee and a delight. It is with a brokenness, and you want to avoid that. He said the way to reach somebody's heart, the way to get a hold of them, the way that will really startle them is when you preach heaven. Because the sinner, the self-righteous sinner goes, yeah, I know about hell. I'd rather rule in hell than, than serve in heaven, right? You've heard that before. That they can tolerate. That makes sense. But to say there is a loving God who doesn't want you to go there, who opens to you something that you can't achieve yourself, when he offers you his love and invites you to come in, that is more disarming than ruling in hell. That's what he's saying. That's, what, I think, a beautiful picture of what it looks like to minister with tenderness is to not only think about what is true, but to ask the question, how can I bring this truth to this person? How can I apply it to them in a way that they'll hear, in a way that they'll connect with? And so notice that McShane didn't say, oh, never preach on hell. What McShane said was preach on hell with tenderness, with brokenheartedness. D.A. Carson, I heard him quote this before, and he said he, he misquoted it. He said, he, he, he asked, were you able to preach it with tears? Which is not too far off, right? Tenderness with tears? It's that same idea. Were you able to weep over those who are lost and offer them something better? The gates of heaven wait for you. Why would you go that way? That's serving with tenderness. That's ministering with tenderness rather than zapping your brother with the truth. Now, there are times, and Paul will do it, read the New Testament, where he will come upside your head with truth really hard because sometimes we need that. Sometimes we won't hear it another way. But that's taking into consideration, who am I coming to? What do they need to hear? Rather than, I have a blanket way of doing it, and this is just how I do it. I'm serving with humility. I'm serving with tenderness. And then he says he's, he served with trials. There was opposition to this message. While he's teaching about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, who God is, there's opposition. He served with trials because of the plots of the Jews. They didn't like this idea that Jesus was the Messiah. No, he's not. They didn't like this idea that you don't get right with God by following the law. Yes, you do. It was offensive to them. It offended them. It was, that can't be. And it wasn't just they, they were offended and snooted and walked away. They came after him. They plotted. Do you remember last week he was going to sail and he found out there was a plot against his life? This was something that happened to him regularly. So I was listening to a talk by Tim Keller and he, he's talking about this idea that the gospel will offend people at different points. He said, in honor-based, honor and shame-based cultures, if you go to one of those cultures and you talk about, you must turn the other cheek, they will be really offended at that. What do you mean? They have dishonored me. They have brought shame on me. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. Why would I turn the other cheek? They, they, they've dishonored me in the public. So that, that idea would be offensive to them. But if you go to that same culture and talk about sexual ethics from the Bible, they go, oh, yeah, that's good. I agree with that. That's right. Yeah, they, that, we should do that, even if they don't do it. They, they feel that that's correct. Come here to the West. Talk to somebody about turn the other cheek. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I like that. You know, we should, we should be tolerant of each other and, and, and embrace each other. And then talk to them about sexual ethics. What? You people are so intolerant. Oh, you're so close-minded. It's so narrow. Do you see what just happened? The same message in two different cultures offended at two different points. 
So what Keller goes on to say is he says, if you say, I could never believe the Bible, I could never believe in Jesus Christ because he offends me at this point, what Keller said is you are being ethnocentric. You are saying that your cultural perspective is superior because another culture would say, I fully accept that point. And now you just judge that other culture and say you're, you're superior to them. So here's the question. Has the gospel ever offended you at some point? Are there, are there times when you go, I just really have a hard time with this? Reading through the Bible in a year, do you get to certain points and go, I don't understand this one lick? But God did it. So it must be good. It must be right. So when Paul comes in and he preaches the gospel, do you notice who it offends? It offends the Jews. They're the ones who are going after him. It offends them. What offends them? Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That can't be. What happened when he preached to the Gentiles? What, where did it offend them? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Don't give me this monotheism stuff. The Jews are going, monotheism all the way, baby. The Gentiles are like, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We don't know what you're talking about. That's what he means by his service was with trials. It's going to be offensive to different cultures at different places. It's going to get different people mad in different ways. So if you're serving and somebody rebukes you, they may be right or they may be wrong. But if somebody never gets upset with you, if somebody never gets up and walks out, maybe you're not hitting all the right points. If you've glazed over the, the, the offenses, the, the parts that are, would induce trials. So that's the nature of Paul's ministry. It is humble. It says, I am not the greatest thing in the entire world. God is, and he's called me to do this, so this is what I'm doing. It's with tears. It's emotionally engaging. It's engaging with people in ways that will break your heart. You expend yourself. You put yourself out. You say, I, I could be offended at this. I could be broken by this. This person could totally let me down. That's the nature of Paul's ministry, and it is at points offensive to people. It's with trials. It's going to get somebody angry. But the next thing that he says is, I did not shrink back. I did not withdraw. I didn't chicken out from declaring to you everything that was profitable. Anything that would be good for you, I, I don't care what the opposition was. I don't care how much trouble I got into. It was profitable for you, and I declared it. That's what I did. So that's the nature of his, his ministry is to declare in the face of opposition, in the face of the Jews coming after him, in the face of the Gentiles wanting to drag him into the courts, he said, what I have to say, though it offends, is profitable for you. It is good for you to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the eternally begotten Son of God, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, and that he now sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for you. That's profitable. And to certain parts of our culture, pieces of that will be offensive. But I didn't shrink back. I preached what was profitable, what was helpful, what was useful. There's a danger sometimes when we're, when we're talking, especially about doctrine. Doctrine is vitally important. You can't properly know who God is without proper doctrine. Um, I, I like to think of God as, warning, red flag, <laughs> don't go there. You like to think of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures is how you like to think of, of God. So when he says that it's profitable, it's dangerous to say, I'm beginning to get a head full of knowledge, 
and a heart full of pride here because I know these things. If, if we're doing this correctly, we're getting the full picture of who God is, it is drawing us in carefully and humbly and saying, he is all of that and I am not. And so we have to make sure it is profitable, that it doesn't just puff people up, that it doesn't fill their head with a bunch of really interesting facts, but it fills their heart with a love for God instead of pride. So he, he preaches what was profitable. And the next thing he says is, he kind of sums up what his message is. He says, I, re I preached repentance towards God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions, I preached to the Jews, I preached to the Greeks, I preached repentance and I preached faith. And so sometimes you might read that and think it sounds like, well, the Greeks needed to repent towards God, right? They had multiple gods, they had these you know, things they made with hands and they worshiped. They needed to repent who God was. The Jews knew who God was, they had God, they had the Old Testament scriptures. What they needed is to have faith in Jesus Christ. This doesn't work, it doesn't hold together because he says, I preach to all people. Everybody got this message. You need to repent, and you need to believe. So Jew or Gentile, they all needed to do that because he was testifying to both Jew and Greek. The Jews needed to repentance towards God. Have you thought of that? The Jews needed to repent towards God. They misunderstood who he was. When God's eternally begotten, there was never a time when the Son didn't exist. The Son of God comes, takes on flesh, walks among them, and what did they do? They killed him. They denied, they, they said that if you say that when we see you, we see the Father, that's blasphemy. They needed to repent from who God, from their understanding of God. They needed repentance towards God, just as much as the Gentiles who set up a piece of silver and bowed down and worshiped it and said, that's God. They needed to repent towards who God was as well. And the Jews needed to have faith in Jesus. Yes, they did. He was the Messiah who was promised from ages before that the, he should come to them. But the Gentiles needed to have faith in Jesus Christ too. As a matter of fact, that's what caused the, the stink in Ephesus was Jesus was raised from the dead. He was this true God. And that meant that, uh, that Artemis of the Ephesians was not. So he was calling them to faith in God. That's the nature of the ministry is it is repentance towards God, who God really is, and faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything you want to know about God, you learn from Jesus Christ. You have to have faith in him. That's, that's the nature of who he was. So real quick, sum up, what did we learn about the nature of Paul's ministry in Asia? What can we learn about how we should be ministering? It was humble. It was passionate. It was opposed. There were people who didn't like it. He was fearless. I didn't shrink back. It was helpful. I've I preached to you everything that was profitable. And it was indiscriminate, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. He preached to whoever. So that's the nature of his ministry. And finally, he talks about where is he going? And this is the part where I, I, I was telling Lisa earlier this week, I, I scribbled this outline out and I, I looked at it and I think I'm cheating. It feels like this outline is kind of cheating, especially where he's going, huh? Once you dig into it, it makes more sense. So this is where he, he says, this is where I'm going. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that, I, that once I get there, imprisonment and affliction awaits me. So Paul has, remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Paul has determined in his spirit. He has solidified in his spirit that he is going to go to Jerusalem. And the question was, was it the Holy Spirit that constrained him, or did he do it to himself? 
And I'm not going to really fully answer it. We'll just keep stumbling through this and gathering the pieces as we go. But that idea of constrained, it means to be bind, to, to tie up. And it again has, it can be translated either, either as a middle voice where it's he bound himself, he decided within himself, and then the exact same spelling of the word could be passive, where he was bound, it was put on him. So if you want a solid answer, did Paul determine this or would the Holy Spirit impress it upon him? Can't tell. Can't give you a solid answer yet. Um, I think that based on the previous one, I think this is Paul has determined that this is going to be what he's going to do. So in the spirit, um, almost every translation has that in a footnote as lowercase s. Uh, many of the translations have capital S, which would mean the Holy Spirit. And the footnote says lowercase s. And in spirit would be like in his innermost being, he's resolved to do this. Um, I still kind of lean in that direction. We'll see where we wind up. I may totally flip-flop on y'all, but I'm kind of thinking in that direction. Be and one of the reasons here is because the very next verse he says, except that the Holy Spirit. So I am, I am constrained in spirit. And then the next thing he says is the Holy Spirit. So it seems like he switched there maybe on purpose. I don't know. But what he's determined is he's going to go to Jerusalem. And what he's telling us is for whatever reason, He's determined, it's either his determination or the Holy Spirit is impressed upon him. You must be there. Whichever it is, one thing we know that the Holy Spirit has done for sure is kept telling him every city he's visited, when he gets there, people come to him, either through prophets in the church. There were prophets in those days, through visions, through dreams, whatever it is. We don't know how he did it, but the Holy Spirit communicated to Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, imprisonment awaits you. Chains await you in Jerusalem. And does that, does that dissuade Paul? Does, that, does he say, well, I'm not going then. It's going to ruin a perfect. Look at how great my ministry has been. If I go get arrested in Jerusalem, it's going to just bring all this to an end. And then, you know, what will God do without me? He, how will he ever get his message out? He says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit attests to me that I will be arrested, that chains wait for me when I get there. So why is he going? What's his purpose? He says in verse 24, I don't account my life of any value. I'm not going to avoid Jerusalem because it, it will spare me chains. Did he avoid Ephesus? Do you remember when they threw the riot and tried to you know, arrest people? He was heading for the, the, the theater. He's like, I'm going in. I got to defend this. And his disciples and everybody grabbed him. No, please don't. He did the same thing in Thessalonica. I'm heading in. No, 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 no. Don't go in there. It's only going to make it worse. Paul didn't think the most important thing today is that I stay alive. For Paul, he says, the most important thing, I don't count my life as precious, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The most important thing for Paul, the, the major word in his ministry is the gospel of the grace of God. And what's grace? I've, I've, I've defined that before. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is God's favor. It is God setting his affections on us. It is God saying, I have loved you. It's unmerited. You don't earn it. As soon as you earn it, as soon as you're good enough for God to fix his love on you, it's no longer grace. Now it's wages. I did this, you do that. Transaction. It's God's unmerited and it's favor. And, and I've said before, his favor is not... He's got a picture of you on his mantle and just looks fondly at it once in a while. It is, 
I have fixed my love on these people for no reason in themselves, simply because I love them. And because I love them, I am going to pour out on them every good possible thing. When trials and tribulations and persecutions and opposition come, I will pour my grace on them. When things are good and comfortable, when the gospel is heard, I will pour my grace on them. When they turn from me and they sin on occasion, I will pour my grace on them. When they worship me in, uh, together corporately, I will pour my grace on them. It's unmerited favor. It is God's love. This is the gospel of grace that Paul has been preaching. He's been telling people, you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. That's not the point. God is good enough, and that's what's important. And that's why he can say, I don't count my life as anything. If they kill me, darn, I get to go be with Jesus. If I stay here, I get to continue to tell people about Jesus. I win either way. So I don't count my life as the most important thing. I don't count my comfort as the most important thing, provided I can continue to preach this gospel. So why am I going to Jerusalem knowing that I'll be arrested? Because the Jews need to hear the gospel. It's the most important thing. It's what they have to hear. So listen to what he says in Romans chapter 9. This is, I think this paints a picture of why is he going to Jerusalem knowing what's waiting for them. This is what he says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? He said, I could wish myself accursed. Anathema. I could wish myself damned to hell if it would save some of my, friend, my family members, some of the people according to my clan. So if he's willing to go that far, does it really bother him to go into Jerusalem and get arrested? Get put in chains? And do you notice how he started? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Did he not preach with tears to the Ephesians? Does he not preach with fear, or with, uh, with tears, with sorrow, with grief to the Jews? He wants them to be saved. I have this wonderful message I want you to hear. So if I walk into Jerusalem and you arrest me, I want to preach this message to you. Maybe some of you will hear and some of you will believe. So that's why he's going to Jerusalem. Do you get the, the feeling this man is passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be passionate about the salvation of souls. That sounds a lot like McShane saying, were you able to preach with tenderness? Were you able to warn people? Were you able to invite them to something better? Were you able to grip their hearts and, and call them to something more? And so he's heading to Jerusalem, and at the end he says, none of you will see my face again. None of you amongst whom I have preached the kingdom will see my face again. He, he believes in his heart that he is heading to Jerusalem. He will be arrested. He may well be executed. And I think at this point, Luke is with him. Because remember, at the end of Acts, it just ends with him in, under arrest in, in uh, Rome. So it seems like 
Luke gets that far and then stops writing the, the end of the story. So at this point, both Luke and Paul are looking to the future and saying, it doesn't sound like I'm ever coming back. It sounds like this is the end of the road. This is the last time I'll see you. Now, the problem is in some of the pastoral epistles, it sounds like he does come back to Ephesus. And that's where we have to keep in mind that the book, the end of the book of Acts is not the end of Paul. It's just the end of the book of Acts. There, there's evidence that other things happen outside the book that, that Luke didn't record. There's evidence that things happen after the book of Acts. Apparently, Paul is released. There's even the theory that he made it to Spain because he told the Romans, I want to stop by on the way to Spain and see you guys. And so there's, there's some extra biblical historical evidence that he may have actually made it to Spain. So when he says here, I'm looking forward and I don't see a return visit, I, I know that some of you will never see my face again. It, it's heartbreaking to him. It's heartbreaking to the Ephesians. They're crying. But it may not actually have panned out that way. He may have seen them again at some point. Or there was more trips to Ephesus that we just don't know of. But at this point, this is where his heart is. This is where his mind is. is my, my ministry to you is over. I'm finished. So that's that point about where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? To preach the gospel. What awaits him? Chains, affliction, prison, potential death. But he's going to Jerusalem. And that takes us to the last part where he then turns to these elders and he says, this is what you should do. He's called the elders. Now, the elders, remember we talked about this earlier, the elders are the leaders of the church. These are men that were set aside and appointed. You are going to be in charge of, of uh, the church. And so he, he probably would have loved to have the whole church come down to him. He probably would have loved to have one more evening in the, the church service at Ephesus, but he couldn't do it. And so he wants to get this message to the church. And so he says, you elders, it's a smaller group of people. You guys come down and let me tell you. Um, sometimes we can look at this and go, well, the elders are special. You know, they got the secret uh, uh, counsel with, with Paul. And he called them because they're so much better. They're, the, they're what the church is really about. Uh, as we go through this, you're going to find out that elders are not what the church is really about. The elders have a role in the church. And it's important. So let's, let's hear what he has to say. He says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers for the care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So you elders, this is your role. This is your responsibility. You're to pay careful attention to yourself first. You're not a superhero. You need to be checking yourself. And that's, that's consistent. Paul in, in Galatians says, you who are spiritual, correct those who are in, in uh, sin. And before you do, check yourself, by the way. Jesus himself said, look, before you go take that little speck out of your brother's eye, get rid of that log in your own. This is a consistent message. Pay careful attention to yourself. How are you doing? And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, you are the flock of God. You're the flock. His, I'm so glad Ramey read Psalm 23 this morning. We are the sheep of his hand. We are the sheep that are in his pasture. The picture from Psalm 23 is he, he delights in his sheep. He cares for and nurtures his flock. You are the flock of God. You are, you are God's sheep, the ones that he takes care of. He seeks after, he watches over. And these elders who have been appointed to, to, to oversee you, they've been appointed 
because the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. Now, a little sidestep here, the overseers. Uh, the word there is episkopos, bishop. It's where we get the word bishop. But who's he talking to? The presbyters, presbyteros, or presbytons or something. I forget what the Greek word is. It's the presbyters, the elders. Elders and overseers are interchangeably used. Elders and bishops are the same thing. Um, now, the idea that the bishop would be one individual person who would be over a group actually emerged fairly early in the church, about the second century. Irenaeus and Ignatius came up, uh, began to speak that way, and they probably did it because there was a real need to do that. Uh, so I don't want to bash on, on Episcopal forms of church government. Um, there's a long history of it, a very long history. But if we're going to look back to what Paul is saying here, early on, they were the same. They were the presbyters. They were the elders. They were the overseers. They took care of the flock. They care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I, that one, I remember a number of years ago, I read that, and it just stopped me in my trick, tracks. Does God have blood? God's spirit. He doesn't have arms. He doesn't have wings. He doesn't have feathers. He doesn't have a body. He is spirit. God doesn't have blood. But God purchased the church with his own blood because Jesus Christ became flesh. He came down from heaven, took on flesh, added flesh to himself so that he could bleed. And so God's own blood, this is a, a strong testimony to the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He is God with blood. And God with blood shed that blood for one purpose, to purchase you, to make you acceptable to his Father. He paid this infinite debt to bring you to himself. He, you're, you're his sheep. The shepherd laid down his life. He poured out his blood. God purchased you with his own blood. What a unique privilege that is. Now, all the elders in the room are going to turn in a letter of resignation right now because they're like, I have to oversee that? This, this has been purchased with the blood of Christ and I'm in charge? I'm out of here. But again, we're going to serve with humility. The Holy Spirit has called us to this role. All your letters of, of resignation are rejected. You're stuck. Because the Holy Spirit has called you to it. He's fitted you for it. So this is the nature of the church. This is the preciousness of the church of Jesus Christ, the, the church that God purchased with his own blood. And here's the warning. You elders, you leaders, you sharp folks in the church, pay attention to this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing that flock. Fierce wolves will come in. They will enter in, they will come from the outside and they will come in and they will not spare the flock. There will be people come in and try to cause trouble. And the way you recognize them is they don't spare the flock. They draw people to themselves. They say, oh, well, you know, Pastor Tim's a pretty good guy, but you know, if you really want the inside track, I've got a better understanding of this than he does. Or, you know, Dan, he's a pretty, he's a good teacher, he's all right. But, you know, I've got this better understanding, and, you know, you should hear me. And, boy, when you hear that, watch those red flags pop up. Ravenous wolves will come in, and they will not spare you. 
Those kind of messages that are going to separate you from the rest of the flock are not for your good. They will devour you. They will wipe you out. They're going to come and they're going to lead you astray and they won't spare you. And from your own selves will men arise, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples to themselves. Now, from your own selves, is that just amongst the elders? Oh, I wish. Then we could deal with it really in-house and everything. I think he means in the entire church. Not only will it, ravenous wolves come from outside, but people inside the church will rise up and twist things, bend them in freakish ways to draw you away, to say, well, yeah, you're a disciple there, but you should be a disciple with me. And so we need to be really careful with this stuff. Yes, it's addressed to the elders, because ultimately the elders are going to be the one that, that deal with it. But all of us need to be on guard. Every one of you sheep better make sure you're not wandering away. Keep your eyes open. Be leery of this stuff. Don't let them devour you. Therefore, be alert. It's the very next words he has to say. And I don't believe he's just telling the elders be alert and the rest of y'all can fall asleep. He's telling us all, even, even today, even all of us, be alert. Watch out for this stuff because it happens. It will happen. God spared us so far, but it's, it's probably going to happen. Sometime during our tenure, we're going to have to deal with a twisted person teaching things they shouldn't teach. So be eager to maintain the unity of the faith. Let's work towards that. And also, remember at the beginning, he says, um, and some among you will, will rise up and do this. So this doesn't immune the elders from rebuke. If we do something wrong, if we're heading in the wrong direction, we're open to criticism as well. Be alert. Make sure we're not turning into ravenous wolves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. Paul is our example. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I've done everything. I taught you with tears for years. Three years, he says he was there. He taught in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. He was there before the Hall of Tyrannus. He was there after the Hall of Tyrannus. He spent three years in ministry at Ephesus with tears. And so since he's done all of that, since he's poured all of these things into you, by the way, we get that in the New Testament. We don't have to wish we knew what he said in, in the Hall of Tyrannus. God's inspired it, and we have the New Testament to tell us. He commends that to us. What you need, I have given. Everything that God's given me and he told me to give to you, I have given. You have the New Testament. You have the Bible. You have his word. You have his spirit. Therefore, now I commend you to, the, to God and to the word of his grace. And if anybody tries to steal grace from you, if anybody comes in and says, it's not unmerited favor, you got to do this and this and this, or, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you're saved that way, but if you really want to be spiritual, you got to do these things. Don't let them steal from you the word of grace. You are right with God because of grace. Now go and live as one who is right with God. That's liberating, that's freeing. I commend you to, the, to God and to the word of his grace. And that is actually able to build you up. The people are afraid of grace. What, if you don't give me a bunch of rules, what am I going to do? Well, you're going to rest in God's grace and you're going to be built up because God's grace is sufficient to build you up, which means you will do those things. But I don't have to start with those things. I start with who God is. 
I commend you to God and the word of his grace, and that's able to build you up, to give you the inheritance. Do you have the inheritance right now? You got a great down payment on it. You got the, the best guarantee of that inheritance that you could possibly have. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of God's promise. Since you have received the Holy Spirit, since he has shed abroad in your heart the love of God, you have the guarantee that this inheritance is coming. Take a peek at the end of the book and you'll see what the inheritance is. It's great. And I don't mean the book of Acts. I mean the, the Bible. That's your inheritance. That's what's waiting for you. Now, Paul goes kind of back to who he is. He says, I coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. What Paul is telling him is, I didn't come in and ask for a bunch of money from y'all. I didn't come in and say, you got to give me money. That is something that apparently happened frequently in the first century. Uh, the book called the Dadaki, the, the teaching of the 12 apostles, says if someone comes to you as an apostle, and they do this, they're not apostles. And one of the things is if they come and they stay too long, or if they ask for a bunch of money, they're not apostles, throw them out. So this was apparently an ongoing problem. I think part of the reason is, is because they had um, uh, peripatetic philosophers. Isn't that a great word, peripatetic? And they were probably pathetic peripatetic <laughs> philosophers. Uh, where they would go around and they would teach, and they would stand up and they would spout their philosophy and ask people for money. Um, and so Paul's saying, that's not what I did. When I was with you, what did I do? I worked with my hands. I labored. I provided. And I didn't provide just for myself. I also provided for everybody who was serving with me, with Timothy and Silas and, and all these other people who came with me. I, I provided for them. In all things, he provided for them. He says, and in all things, uh, I, behold, I know that none of among you, uh, uh, wait, where did I go? 35, oh, I didn't turn the page. <laughs> Wait a minute, we already covered that. Um, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus Christ, how he said uh, himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In all things, I have shown you, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must accumulate a lot of money to ourselves. No, we must, um, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So why is Paul working hard when he's with the Ephesians? To help the weak. To give away, to, to, to hand out freely the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he did. And then it says, the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Where did Jesus say that? It's not in any of the Gospels. The only place Jesus said that was right here. Did Jesus say this? Yeah, he could say that here too. The Gospels, you know, he's not restricted to the Gospels. He has spoken in the book of Acts before, hasn't he? He said, stay here in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. He, he said to Paul, 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 why do you persecute me? He said to Ananias, go to this, the house on, on the street called Straight and, and bless this man. Yeah, I know he's been persecuting the church, but he must understand how he'll, he'll suffer for me. So if Jesus speaks here, it's okay. Paul is quoting something that we don't have in the Gospels, but it's all right. It, it's still a true statement. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
How do you know that? How do we know that? How did Jesus model that for us? He emptied himself and humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself. It doesn't mean he stopped being divine. He emptied himself of that privilege. He emptied himself of myriads of angels singing how glorious he was. He said, I'm going to set that aside. And to my infinity, to my infinite being, I'm going to add this, this little speck called humanity. And when I, when I take on human form, I'm not going to come as a reigning king and a ruling uh, powerful person. I'm going to come and I'm going to show them that it's better to give than to receive. I will be a servant. This eternal God, this all-powerful God, stripped himself, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' muddy, yucky feet. Did Jesus ever demonstrate to us that it is better to give than to receive? This is the model for Christian ministry. This is what the church should be, the hallmark of the church. This is what it should look like. These are the things that Paul is commending to us. And so the last little bit is kind of a a wrapping up of of, uh, the story. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. For some reason, I don't know if you got this, for some reason I got in my head this happened on a beach. It's kind of like, you know, when Paul fell to the ground in in, uh, Acts chapter 9 when Jesus appeared, he fell off a horse, right? There's no horse in Acts chapter 9. There's no beach in Acts chapter 20. He could have knelt down in a house. I don't know how I got beach in my head. But what he did was after he said these things, he knelt down. He, He got in a position, a physical position of submission, saying, I'm not looking down on you. I'm not telling you because I'm so much better. He grabs these guys. I just picture him grabbing them, kneeling down, pulling everybody else down on their knees and saying, let's pray. Because at the foot of the cross, we're all on our knees. We're all even. We're all in subjection. And so let's go to the foot of the cross. Let's go to Jesus Christ and let's pray. And so he kneels down and he prayed with them all. And as soon as they're done praying, there was much weeping on the part of all. All, including Paul, including Luke, including the Ephesian elders. They're all weeping because... They know what, what he said. They were sorrowful because of the word that he had spoken that he would not see their face again. Paul, we're going to miss you. That's why I think it, it was kind of important for uh, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos to be introduced there is we can kind of feel that same grief of, Paul, we're going to miss you. How is the church ever going to survive without you? Well, the church will survive because Apollos is going to show up. The church will survive because I've run my course, I've done my thing, and if I've done it right, I've equipped you. So the church will survive because I've done what I've been called to do, but we can still miss him. I, I kind of feel this, this sense of like almost foreboding as we keep going. It's like, I don't want to go any further. I want the story to keep rolling. I want Paul's ministry to keep being told. But they embrace Paul and they kiss him. And they say goodbye, and then it says, and they accompany him to the, sh- to the ship. They walk him to the ship, and he goes up the gangplank, and they're standing on the shore waving goodbye, thinking in their hearts, we'll never see that man again. But he was Jesus Christ to us. He modeled Jesus Christ to us. We haven't ever seen Paul, um, but he's had such a profound impact on this church. Huge, huge impact on this church. Um, 
when we see him sailing away and, and we're standing on the shore waving, it's okay to feel a little bit of sadness. Um, I, I wish he was still here. But he's commended us to God and he's commended us to the Holy Spirit and to the word of his grace. He has given us what we need. And so as a church, can we look at his method, his, his model of ministry and say, that's what we need to be doing. This is how I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve with humility. In other words, if I don't get called out in front of the church and thanked publicly, I'm going to serve with humility because I'm serving the Lord, not the church. Can we serve with tears? Do you ever read through the prayer requests and feel a tug on your heart and think, oh, that poor person, let me pray for him. Do you ever talk with somebody in the hallway and hear, hear what's going on in somebody's life and say, oh man, and let it hurt. We need to serve with tears. And then lastly, we've got to be unafraid, not draw back just because what we have to say is offensive. It's going to tick off somebody at some point. We were at the college praying for people and we were talking with this one gentleman. I think he was a Hebrew, Hebrew Israelite because he was saying, yeah, Jesus is not the Messiah. And, and Christine and I were saying, oh, yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul said he was the Messiah. He proved he was the Messiah by his resurrection. And as we're talking, I mentioned the Trinity. And he goes, oh, we know that ain't true. I pulled out of my pocket our business card. And I said, I, we think it is. <laughs> I wasn't afraid to offend him because it was offending him with the truth, not with my, you know, how wonderful I am. And boy, you should listen to my sermons. It was, this is who God is, and you really need to get right with him. Let's make this the model of our ministry. This is Paul's last words to us before he, he heads off to be arrested. It's not the last thing he has to say, but it's the last words to us. So let's make that our model. You ready, sheep? Let's pray. Lord, you are our shepherd. And because you have provided us everything we have in Jesus Christ for life and godliness, we don't want Lord, sometimes the road is difficult, um, the, the, the physical pain is much, the isolation, the, the opposition is true, but Lord, you've led us to green pastures and you've told us to lay down. And so we rest in Christ. Lord, we confess that sometimes we, we head off, we get lost, we, we wander away, and so your rod to crack us on the backside and your staff to hook us and draw us in they are a comfort to us because we know that we won't be lost. We know that our good shepherd will come and get us. And Lord, the blessing is our cup overflows and goodness follow us all the days of our lives. We can't wander away from you. You are the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. So Lord, would you cause us to be the kind of ministry that, that you had in mind, the kind of ministry that you called Paul to establish and Lord, may we be faithful with the gospel of the grace of God. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.